and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Papinski, and today my guest is Camilla Shamsi, author of Best of Friends, a moving and surprising story of a lifelong friendship and the forces that bring it to the breaking point. Real Simple calls Best of Friends unputdownable, which I agree with, and in a starred review, Kirkus said, Shamsi is superb at interweaving personal dilemmas and political realities. Her continually surprising story vibrates with contemporary concerns from social media privacy to immigration. The novel also wisely observes the enigmatic nature of longtime friendships and shows how female power transforms over time. The protagonists will stay in readers' minds long after this piercingly honest novel concludes. Um, and I can definitely attest to that. I can't stop thinking about these characters. Camilla Shamsi is the author of several previous novels, most recently Home Fire, which won the Women's Prize for Fiction, was longlisted for the Booker Prize, and was a finalist for the International Dublin Literary Award, the Costa Novel Award, and the DSC Prize for South Asian Literature, among other honors. She was raised in Karachi and lives in London. Um, Camilla, welcome to A Bookish Home, and congratulations on the new book. Thank you, Laura. For listeners who have not gotten to pick up Best of Friends yet, could you tell us a little bit about the premise of the books and of the book and these two characters, Zara and Miriam? Sure. Um, I've been interested for a really long time in the idea of childhood friendship, which I don't know if you still have friends who you were friends with as children, Laura, as a child. Um, but it's a very particular kind of friendship. You you become friends almost before you know your own characters or values or anything, and before you've really formed into the people you'll be as adults. Um, and it really started with my sister years ago said to me, um, the friends we make as adults are our friends because we have something in common, but our childhood friends are our friends because we've always been our friends. And what I want to do in this novel is to really give you a portrait of one such friendship through through the space of three decades. And, and so when we start, it's Karachi 1988. There are two 14-year-old girls, Zahra and Mariam. They've been best friends for 10 years already, although they're just 14. Um, but they're at that moment of adolescence where secrets are starting to enter their lives and their relationships um, and different ways of seeing things and decisions that will have um, strong repercussions. Um, so we see them first in at that stage where there is an event, which we may or may not go into, uh, which sort of tests their friendship, but also strengthens it. And then the mo novel moves forward 30 years and they're grown women in London. And as often happens with childhood friends, they've actually become very, very different people. Um, they're both quite powerful, but in contrasting realms. And the differences between them are no longer something they can ignore or walk around, even as the love and loyalty hasn't diminished at all over the years. I, I do have, in particular, one good friend from growing up, and I've never really had a book put into words so well, how those friendship dynamics evolve. And there was one line I just underlined and went, yes, um, hadn't really thought of it this way before, but you write, the problem with childhood friendship was that you could sometimes fail to see the adult in front of you because you had such a fixed idea of the teenager she once was. And other times you were unable to see the teenager still alive and kicking in the adult. It's this strange thing with, you know, these intense friendships you have growing up that, yes, as adults, it really is hard to separate and think of them as, as an adult and not that teenager. And then, yeah, at other times 
it's you're looking at them wondering, oh, are you still that that girl that I grew up with? And it's just such an interesting dynamic. And I, I love watching it play out in the pages. And it got me wondering, too, the structure of focusing on them at 14 and then again in their 40s. Did that come to you right away? What kind of made you narrow in on just those two periods instead of maybe, I, I like those the kind of intensity of that rather than maybe following them, their whole friendship. Um, well, you know, so I've told you that for a long time, I sort of wanted to write a childhood friendship novel. The moment where I think I really realized I was going to do this was was actually around 2016, um, which, you know, you had Brexit on one side of the Atlantic and you had Trump on the other side. And I, I was hearing a lot of conversations where people were saying things like, there's this person in my life, whether it's a family member or a friend, and we've always had our differences, but it's always been okay. But now we can no longer speak to each other. And so there was mm. something about the present day, really. Um, and the way, you know, differences feel so sort of insurmountable. Um, so I think, I, so I always knew it would end in the present, in, you know, in that kind of atmosphere where everything feels so high stakes and, and, really what you believe or who you vote for or you know, things like that actually reveal, you, you see them to reveal something very deep in people's characters. Uh, but when I started it, I, I did think I would write it sort of more sequentially through the course of their lives. Um, and I tried with the first draft sort of writing, you know, them in their sort of 20s and 30s. And actually what I realized was the meat of the novel was in the childhood and then you know, them in their 40s and everything else was kind of me as the writer writing it to figure out what they'd been doing in those in-between years, but it wasn't where the story was. I'm always interested how writers tap into that uh, intense teenage time and sort of get, because the way you get into the um, characters' heads during that time just felt so, you know, accurate and believable. And I just wondered kind of how you went back to kind of bring those feelings up and, and get them on the page and, and also what your experience was like growing up. And if you had that kind of intense female friendship or any like similar experiences. Um, so there's quite a lot of pop culture in that first half of the book. You know, they're, they're, they're always listening to music. And although they're in, in Karachi and there are a couple of sort of Pakistani bands they listen to, um, most of the music that's coming to them is from America and the UK, um, and particularly America. So, well, and from the UK, of course, George Michael. George Michael is their central love, but they're, they're listening to Tracy Chapman <laughs> and Madonna and Bruce Springsteen. Um, and, and the truth is, Laura, you can play those songs now for me, and I'm 14 again. Um, uh, so, yeah. just that question of how do you access it? Actually, those are certain ways of doing it because, you know, you feel music so intensely at that age. Um, so I can remember what it felt like to be, you know, 13 or 14 and in love with George Michael um, or listening to the new Springsteen song. Um, so something comes back in you. But also I have a lot of childhood friends um, and we talk about, you know, you're always sort of part of that friendship is to swap memories and anecdotes. Um, but what is also interesting is sometimes someone will say something um, and there's a friend of mine, and I was once present when something quite unpleasant happened to her. And she and I never spoke about it for about 30 years. Oh, wow. Um, probably when we were, you know, in our late 30s or something, that in some conversation she brought it up. Um, and she sort of looked at me and she said, I know you were standing there and I know you didn't like what was happening. Um, you know, and that kind of thing that that it is, you, you know, 
you so you remember the moment, but you can also, I think, much later on, think more deeply about what it meant and how you felt, which is at 14, you don't exactly see how deeply something sat in you. Yeah, um, it, it's so interesting to think about tapping into it through the music and everything as well. Well, the other thing I thought was interesting was sort of in both sections, the setting is such a huge part of the story and they're both drawn so well. And in terms of the childhood in Karachi, there was a line that really struck me that I wondered if you could talk about a little bit where Zara thinking, as long as she could remember, there had been this feeling of threat stalking her everywhere. Say the wrong thing, turn down the wrong street, allow yourself the mildest transgression, and some creature awful and unknown would swoop down on you, towns tearing into your flesh. There's the the teenage sort of drama and, you know, relationships and things like that. And there's this also this political backdrop. And, and I wonder if you could talk sort of a little bit about what was going on at the time that this is set. Sure. So this was 1988 in, in Pakistan. And, and within the course of the novel, actually, you see quite a dramatic shift because at the start of the novel, um, there's a military dictatorship. Um, and then very soon, the, the dictator Zia al-Haq is killed. And, you know, by the end of that first section, there are elections and this 35-year-old woman, Benazir Bhutto, comes to power. And it feels amazing and wonderful. Um, but there are, there that sort of threat Zara talks about, that sort of exists at many levels. On one hand, there is that threat of living in a dictatorship and feeling, you know, there's a surveillance state, people are listening in. If you say the wrong thing, you learn very early on. I mean, I know, I remember this. Very early on, you knew you shouldn't say anything critical of the government on the telephone because anyone could be listening in. Um, so there's that kind of feeling on one hand of a, a certain degree of paranoia and threat. Um, then there is you know, that thing of you're a 14-year-old girl and there are certain ways in which you're expected to behave. You know, good girls behave in a certain way. And if your reputation is threatened, that'll just be terrible. It'll be the worst thing that can happen, you know, if you're seen talking to the wrong boy or wearing the wrong kinds of clothes. Um, and then there is still that other layer of threat, which is um, that as girls, you're largely staying in private spaces and, and sort of the outdoors and the public world is very much a male space. Um, and this idea that if you step into it among men, um, you know, you're 14 year old, you're just really becoming aware of your changing bodies and your sexuality. Um, and you're becoming an object of men's attention in a particular way. Um, and the feeling of threat that's attached to all of that. Um, and one of the differences between the two girls is Zara feels all these things very strongly. And Mariam's whose family is very powerful and very rich, almost feels as though she exists in a state of exception. You know, that nothing mm -hmm. can touch that she'll be protected. And part of what is so, you know, as the, the novel goes on, sort of for her to realize that isn't strictly true um, is a moment that really cuts her very deeply to realize that actually, if you're a girl, it doesn't matter how rich and connected and powerful you are. You can still be treated as just a girl. Yeah, I, and I don't want to give too much away, but yes, sort of seeing how different event, events sort of propel them on these paths that later we kind of find them on later in the book. Could you talk a little bit about what they're up to in the present day? And I'm curious mm -hmm. if it was difficult to kind of tap into either of them and sort of get in their head 
as an adult or sort of how you went about doing that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting how easy it always was to get into their heads. And that isn't necessarily the case with every novel I write. But, but with the two of them, I knew all along who they were and who they were in their relationship with each other. And that was equally true of their 14-year-old selves as it was of their you know, 45-year-old selves. Um, and maybe that's partly because of that work I did in the first draft of sort of, you know, doing the writing of the in-between years, which, you know, wasn't very good writing, but it, it got me to sort of travel with them through life. Um, mm, yeah. So one of them, Zara, is um, the head of an organization called the Center for Civil Liberties, which is kind of like the ACLU in America. So, think, you know, she's sort of the, the director of this uh, civil liberties organization and um, is a is a very public figure because she's always on um, sort of news channels sort of arguing with government ministers about various uh, policies that they have going on um, and Mariam on the other hand is a venture capitalist who um, has to who you know primarily invests in tech um, and she is not a public figure in that way but she's extremely successful and within her world of venture capitalism is certainly known very well. Um, and then at a certain point, you know, she, you know, taking the lessons she knew about how her family operated in, in Karachi when she was growing up, uh, she realized that all the money she has can actually be used to get a kind of access to political power. Yeah, it's so interesting to watch them as these powerful women in their 40s and just the way their worlds collide at different times in that section again. I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, was there a particular scene in the book that was difficult to get right or something where you maybe like had to get a few, a few versions of it down to sort of get it to, to go the direction that felt right in the book to you? Um, the, and again, we're going to do this without spoilers, but there is a, you know, near the end, there's a, there's a confrontation scene and it, took me a while and it's funny actually how it works is it's not that I had to figure out the content of it I had to figure out when and where it was set you know it's almost mm. like I had the setting wrong for a while um, I had them outdoors on a cold day when I needed them indoors <laughs> you know and, and that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds like a very minor thing but I kept writing when they were outdoors where actually the fact that it was really cold kept getting in the way because you know, they were just feeling cold and uncomfortable and want to cut things short. Um, oh. and as soon as you move it indoors and it's cold outside, but it's warm inside, there's a, there's a sort of a way in which actually they're going to be held within that space much longer. And then that conversation can unspool over a longer period of time and, and in a more organic fashion and more can get said. So it's funny how these things work as writers and, and that it's these little decisions like, am I outdoors or out indoors and what's the temperature like is actually going to affect uh, very profoundly how the scene is written. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. And and I, I can picture the scene you're talking about. And yeah, that would have been a very different moment. Well, I'm kind of curious in terms of your writing journey, are there any particular authors or writers that have had a big impact on you? Um, I think probably you know, the, the writers who whose impact you're aware of most deeply is possibly at a much younger stage. So when I was um, at university and for the first time reading both Toni Morrison and Michael Ondaatje, um, they had enormous impact on me. And, you know, I mean, they're both two really great writers. Um, but the fact that they 
a just their sense of language and music is so profound um but that they can take on these really tough moments in history and yet give you these incredibly intimate stories about them um and even though it was sort of a while before i really did that myself as a writer it was at that early stages as reading those books and those two writers next to each other um and thinking god this is what the novel should be like there should be more of this oh and then you decide to write it i love that <laughs> well in terms of your uh writing routine and maybe how that's evolved over time i read I should have looked up where it was, but I read a, a something you wrote about how um, at one point in your life you would have considered your writing space, I think, two in the morning. But then that really evolved over time, and I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure, this is a piece I wrote for Lit Hub about about writing spaces, and and um, for my first, oh, probably around three novels, I think, um, I used to write very very late at night basically once the rest of the world had gone to sleep um and i would start maybe at 10 or 11 pm um and keep going and there was something about that moment around 2 am where it really just the world feels still and you feel that the only thing awake in it is your imagination um and there's something really you know and, and if you look out the window you just see darkness um mm. and i used to love that but it meant that i was useless for the rest of the day you know i wouldn't wake up <laughs> very late probably till about 5 pm then you go out to meet friends but at the back of your brain there's this idea that you still have to go home and work um and then when i was working on my fourth novel i got invited in one of those rare strokes of luck um to go to a writing retreat in italy in tuscany um and i went then it's the most beautiful place on earth it's a place called the santa maddalena retreat um and that quality of stillness and silence was actually there in the writing room i was given at any time of day and if i looked out the window i wouldn't see i mean i wasn't aware of people you know moving around i'd look out into this beautiful view of a tuscan valley um and there was something in it that just was so calming and settling that i thought actually that peace is a state of mind um it's not about mm. doing um i'm finding it here in this room in tuscany at 10 am and and over the years I've, i've actually learned to locate it within myself so now i can be you know looking out on a busy london street at any time of day um with sort of buses and cars going past and still you know sort of access that stillness and silence within myself but it took some years to get to it yeah oh that's such a lovely story and it's making me think to of um how zara in the book i'm going to mark this down when she's talking mm-hmm. about she picks her apartment based on like the beautiful tree she sees from the window that can make her feel like she's sort of in this like calm peaceful place and um just that like having a a pretty vista sometimes it's really nice i bet um, you think about this tree it's an actual tree in london and i i based sort of zara's apartment exactly so she could look out at this tree which is it's in a really busy part of london there these five roads converging but there's a roundabout and there was this huge weeping willow growing out of it and i was sort of walking i sort of finished the novel i think i was working on copy edits of it um and i walked past and the tree was knocked down in a storm so oh no i thought oh my god poor zara what'll happen when she looks out the window now and i thought well you know for the space of the novel at least she has this tree yes 
Zara's going to have to move. It's funny. They, the char- the characters just, yeah. yeah, the characters just stick with you so much and they really do just feel like real people to me. I'm like, Oh, poor Zara. She's going to have to move. Um, <laughs> well, and that just kind of makes me wonder too. I mean, I guess it's standalone, but do you think you would ever come back to these characters at all? Or do you feel kind of done with their stories? You know, it's funny, my relationship to the characters I write, but when I'm writing, they're so real and I'm seeing every moment and I'm imagining you know, moments that aren't written about. And as soon as I finish it, it's sort of like my, like I just stop, my relationship with them ends. Um, and people sometimes say, oh, so, you know, what do you think happened after? And I say, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> and I say, ideas actually in an ideal world, I want my readers to be imagining it. I want to have given you enough about them that you'll yeah. be thinking what happened next. And and so it's it's almost as though, you know, I'm handing the characters over to the people who read about them and say, you know, now you decide. I love that. I love that. And and yeah, I definitely um, have been spending probably too much time thinking about what's <laughs> happened to these characters. Um, Zara's going to have to move. So that's one thing. Yeah, yeah. That'll, that'll you know, upend lots of things. Well, um, I'm kind of curious for you if there are any um, books lately you've read that you've been um, continuing to think about a lot or books you've really enjoyed that you'd want to recommend to listeners. Um, Well, I read Jennifer Egan's The Candy House over the summer, which I thought was amazing. I mean, she's such a smart writer. And of course, you know, this novel touches a little bit on tech because, you know, Mariam is, um, you know, one of her, the companies she invests in is, social media sort of Instagram like thing, but much creepier with great facial recognition technology. And I think in, in the candy house, Jennifer Egan is just so incredibly smart about, you know, tech and what directions it can go, but at a very human level, like what, what, you know, how it impacts our lives and our relationships with each other. Um, So that's a super smart uh, book. And at the moment I'm reading small things like these by Claire Keegan, which is on the book of shortlist. And it's, it's this tiny, slim little novel, um, and I'm, you know, about halfway through, and it's just exquisitely done. Sort of every, you know, every sentence is exactly what it needs to be. Oh, I'll have to definitely link to to both of those so people can check them out. Well, one other question I had is, you're sort of, you know, out promoting the book and um, probably doing a book tour and everything. I was kind of interested. I when I was doing a little research for the interview, I noticed, and and often the US and the UK have different covers, but in this case, they have very different covers. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of curious what you thought about the different designs and if you had any input at all. Um, And I should say the the US one is sort of like really bright and multicolored. And um, now I'm trying to remember what exactly how to describe the UK one, but um, much more like subdued. Um, I love them both, and and I do. I mean, I don't. I don't go and say this is what I think you should do because you know there are there are people working in my publishing company who actually have design brains, and I don't. Um, but they do send them to me, and I, I you know approved both of these very fast. Um, I sort of love it because I think the the novel has different notes in it and tones in it, and and I think the the UK cover you know brings out more. I think maybe some of the the darker edges of it. Um, whereas the uh, U.S. cover, I think, has a greater sense of the lightness and joy of the friendship. But it's also, I mean, there's, there's a there's a design front which is quite sort of entangled in a way that suggests sort of, you know, twists and complications. 
Um, so you know, yes. I think they're both the kind of books that sort of will pop out at you um, if you yeah. and see them. Yeah, that's such a nice way of thinking about it. They're kind of bringing out different aspects. And yeah, the the U.S. one almost sort of looks like a tangled, bright friendship bracelet. And then the U.K. Mm -hmm. one is that like hill with the sun, but it's like the deep orange and the black. And yeah, I just think it's interesting. Yeah, the way maybe different designers bring out different elements of the book. I, lo I like that. Yeah, um, I went to, to do a book event in England and, and I was wearing you know black trousers and an orange shirt. And it was only when I got to the event, I thought, oh my God, I look like my book cover. <laughs> I'm matching the book. <laughs> well, I'm sure you're sort of busy kind of on the promotion side right now, but do you have a sense of what's coming next or have you written a, any of a next book? Uh, no, I'm one of those people who has very few ideas and they take a while to come. So at the moment, my brain is just sort of it's like writing brain has switched off and now promoting brain is on for a bit. Um, but I always look forward to that moment where I can say, okay, now I can retreat back into a hole and think of, you know, what world I want to disappear into next. Oh, that's, that's very cool to think about. And yeah, I just really hope that people go pick up best of friends from their local bookstore, go place a hold at your library. Well, Camila, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time. Um, best of luck with the rest of your book tour. Um, and I'll look forward to sort of whatever ends up piquing your imagination that we get to read about next. Thank you very much. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. And there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. Um, a Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization Bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. And if you'd like, you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home. I'm also sharing there all of the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports A Bookish Home and independent bookstores, so it's a win-win. So if you wanna check that out directly, it's bookshop.org slash shop slash a bookish home. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.